You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. And it's a quarter of a century since the release of the final findings of the landmark Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody in 1991. Aboriginal imprisonment, imprisonment rates are going up, not down, even despite those recommendations that were released 25 years ago. An Indigenous child now is more likely to be locked up than they are to finish high school, which is a statistic I know that um, Stan Grant has spoken about at length and many other uh, Aboriginal leaders. And we're seeing sort of 50 percent of children in juvenile justice Aboriginal at the moment. Uh, Richard Franklin is a Gujitmara man. He's a playwright, filmmaker, musician and mentor to young people. He's been a guest on this program several times and he was also a field officer for the Royal Commission um, back in 1991 and before. And um, we've asked him to mark the 25th anniversary of the Commission findings with us here on Triple R. And Richard, it's great to have you on, on the program. Um, I suppose for those not familiar with the findings of the Royal Commission and what triggered it, um, how did it begin? What what led to that that um, that commission back uh, in the in the late 80s? There was a um, group in Western Australia, the Committee to Defend Black Rights, who uh, lobbied for the Royal Commission. They had a whole heap of uh, uh, lists of people who died in custody, and then what happened was the government created terms of reference for a Royal Commission and they said we can investigate any death that has a, any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander death that has occurred in custody or as a result of being in custody from 1980 onwards and what happened was the numbers increased so quickly that they quickly established a cut-off point so they made it from 1980 to 1989. At that time there were probably about 99 deaths in custody that fitted the terms of reference. There were a whole heap of other deaths that occurred that um, didn't meet the terms of reference. We eventually got up to 125 deaths in custody in that period of time. Uh, Only 99 were ever investigated. So there's a whole heap of questions there about um, the purpose and role of the Commission, but there's even more questions about the way we as a nation um, are viewing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And Richard, you've written um, plays and and also documentaries about your experience in in working with the Royal Commission. You were a a field officer. What did that role involve for you? Oh, it involved um, liaising with the family members of the deceased, um, interviewing witnesses, um, interviewing, locating witnesses, working with people who had um, uh, either directly witnessed or were a witness to the person's life. So quite often you investigated um, not only the person, how they died in custody, you investigated their whole life. So the terms of reference of the Commission changed again to investigate the social circumstances of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And I think even the Commission shocked about the uh, living conditions, the way people were treated, the attitude of institutions towards Aboriginal people. And a lot of that still negative attitude is still sustainable today. It's still horrific and still scary and still uh, intimidating. And Essentially, I would know how much a person weighed when they were born and I'd know every piece of paper. I'd know secrets that 
I guess I'll never tell anyone. And, and we know, um, Richard, that since the findings were, were handed down in 1991, that imprisonment rates have increased, not decreased. And I, I wonder what has happened um, to those findings. How many um, were implemented? I think very few of the findings were actually implemented. Um, and if they were implemented, quite often there wasn't the attitude to support the policy the legislation or the process that the uh, Commission recommended. I think that um, having a Royal Commission is one thing. Enacting the findings is generally up to the states and the Commonwealth to pursue, and quite often they drag the chain. I think what we face as a nation today, though, is something uh, more heinous and disgusting than we realise and, and what it is is we face a thing and ask a thing called discrimination and willful ignorance so people willfully remain ignorant on what's happened to Aboriginal Australia very few people know where a massacre site is very few people know where a battle site is very few people know how to say hello in the local language or even what traditional land they're living on very few people know about the way in which Aboriginal people are treated in this country and a lot of people have a, a perception that's socially engineered about Aboriginal Australia. Instead of this being one of our nation's uh, greatest moments of humanity and humanitarian actions, this is actually a week of shame. Uh, we could have moved forward collectively as a nation in a wonderful way, saving lives, improving the quality of life. Instead, we um, incarcerate Aboriginal people at an incredible rate. We privatise prisons, which has proven again and again not to work around the world. We deny the access to the wealth and power of the dominant culture to Aboriginal people. We foster unemployment. We foster homelessness. And Aboriginal people die at a rate 10 years sooner or 20 years in some cases sooner than most non-Aboriginal people. And we point the finger and blame the wrong people. The reality is that we have an opportunity in this country to lead the way. Instead, we're dragging the chain in almost every regard in relation to our humanitarian treatment, not just of Indigenous Australians, but also of other um, minority and marginalised groups in Australia. And, and one of those recommendations from, from the Royal Commission, Richard, that, that wasn't implemented was um, that imprisonment should be used as a last resort. Um, I mean, it should be anyway, but for um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. And, and since then, we've seen uh, paperless uh, arrest laws in the Northern Territory um, and also mandatory sentencing instituted in Western Australia for burglaries. And, and that's a state that has uh, the highest, if, if my understanding is correct, proportion of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in prison. Do, do these laws just kind of, in a way, fly in the face of the recommendations coming out of that Royal Commission some 25 years ago? Yeah, I think they fly in the face of that uh, Royal Commission. I think they also fly in the face of basic decency. The reality is simply this, is our prisons um, are mostly designed to incarcerate as opposed to rehabilitate. Um, the point of contact between police and um, Aboriginal and Islander Australians is specific. Um, there's quite often um, people treated very, very badly. 
um, in the cases where police officers are trying to do a good job, quite often they're marginalised or ostracised by their colleagues or they're incredibly under-resourced. As I said, we as a nation and as states have an opportunity to create, develop and implement really affirmative policy and process, um, yet we neglect to do so. And we neglect to do so for a whole heap of reasons. And one of those reasons is uh, that we're under-resourced as a, um, in Aboriginal affairs. Uh, the second reason is that we've been socially engineered to have a perception about Aboriginal and Islander people that's mostly to the negative. And that really um, struck me many years ago when I, I saw your um, documentary, Who Killed Malcolm Smith, which was about a, an individual who um, died in custody. And you ask a, a room full of police officers to write down their responses to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And the sorts of things that you read out later in the documentary are really horrific, prejudice um, kind of attitudes against Aboriginal people. Has this changed at all since you made that documentary? I think there will always be pockets of discrimination within society. Um, within the Victorian Police Force, um, I think there's some great initiatives coming from some of the hierarchy. They're definitely making an attempt to um, take up the initiative of employing more Aboriginal and Islander people. Um, again, based under resource. Uh, there will always be pockets of discrimination within any institution. Um, what I would say to police, uh, to police officers who are trying to make a difference and are trying to engage with the Aboriginal and Islander community in a positive manner is um, stay strong, stay resolute, keep um, reaching out to the community. The greatest problem that we face is uh, any of us who are trying to step over the cultural abyss is sometimes um, stepping over it, we, uh, we get a bit lost along the way. And you, I know you work with young people, um, Richard, and uh, I, I think it's, you know, in many ways obvious that negative attitudes affect the young quite profoundly. And I wonder, with the um, with what we've been speaking about this morning, that we have negative attitudes, there's under-resourcing um, in Aboriginal um, affairs and, and policy and supports. How you know how how um, do you work with young people now? And I suppose um, what are you sensing from 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 the young people that you work with? I'm heading up the Willen Centre at the Victorian College of the Arts at the University of Melbourne, and we have um, a whole heap of young people who are doing undergraduate degrees, but also doing uh, postgraduate degrees and masters and PhD. I'm seeing a lot of hope there. I'm seeing a lot of hope in some communities where people are doing amazing things. Um, I'm working with the Budget Bim Rangers in Western District, Victoria. Um, we're starting up a language reclamation program. What I see uh, succinctly is this. When a young Aboriginal and Islander person has free and easy access to their culture, to their cultural foundations, to the great strength of their culture and when we have access to knowing who our heroes are, to knowing battle sites, when we're not ridiculed or condemned for practising our culture and language, we attain a status called cultural safety and we're culturally safe. When we're culturally safe, we can contribute to the world at a much greater rate. Now, I see lots of heroes out there, black and white, that are trying to make the world a better place for all of us. 
I see people reclaiming culture. I see people working on the front line with young people, building families, making them stronger, making communities stronger. These are the areas that we need to resource. We need to look at how we as a nation make all our communities black and white stronger. And we can only do that if we as a nation have the courage to recognise the past for what it truly is, to have the tenacity to plant seeds here in the present and to enable future generations to grow great, strong communities. We can't do that if we have uh, people who are in absolute denial of our past, who deny the massacres, who deny the war that happened, who deny the um, horrific amounts of deaths and who blame shift from inadequate social structures to blaming the victim. We can't grow as a nation if one part of our nation is blind. And if that blindness comes from the dominant culture, then we need to heal that blindness. Well, 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 initiatives like Justice Targets, I know this is something that several people have called for as part of the sort of close the gap reporting that we have annually in Australia. Would, would something like Justice Targets deal with um, or at least raise awareness of the fact that we, we still have um, one person a month dying in custody in Western Australia, for instance? I, I think we need Justice Targets, but I also think we need a Truth, Justice and Reconciliation Commission because the issue of death in custody is not just about being incarcerated. It's about social circumstances. It's about why are Aboriginal and Islander people um, incarcerated at such a high rate? Why is it that our quality of life is so horrific in some instances or in many instances? Why is it that we're such uh, an unemployable bunch of people? Why is it that we have difficulty getting housing? These questions about quality of life need to be raised and they need to be raised through a vehicle which doesn't end up in a bureaucrat's pile um, on a desk or in an inbox somewhere, unactioned. It needs something which is constantly brought to the surface through broader society and it needs to be in the consciousness of every good-thinking Australian. Uh, every good-thinking Australian that is prepared to take some type of action. In fact, I would encourage your listeners to come and march this NAIDOC week, to contact a local Aboriginal organisation and ask them what issues they're facing and work out how they can contribute. This legacy that we've been left with, this problem doesn't belong just to we, the Aboriginal and Islander people. It belongs to the entire nation. This 228-year-old cultural clash where my people are still dying where Australians are still dying of incredibly um, low mort uh, high mortality rates. We own this together. Now, it doesn't matter to me personally whether you choose to get involved or whether you choose to walk away from it, as long as you know about it. And... Uh, sorry, sorry, but you continue. Oh, yeah, so this is an open invitation for you, uh, you listeners, to take part in this healing part of this nation. Why is it, do you think, as a society that we, we find it so hard to address these issues? Because the Royal Commission is a, um, you know, a, a big step, a big effort um, administratively, um, bureaucratically to take to try and address this issue. But, but as we've spoken about, it happened 25 years ago and, and nothing has really come of it when there seems to be that political will. Why, why do we struggle so much with it, do you think? 
I think that's the way we've uh, progressed as a nation, if you want to call it progress. We've socially, we've been socially engineered to uh, through the great Australian dream, the, the quarter acre block, the job at the factory or down the road, um, the, the 2.5 kids. The reality is that um, we uh, there's a, a growing distance between the wealthy and the poor. Um, and quite often, if you look around the world, society likes to blame the victim. Um, I think, as I said earlier, in Australia, we have the opportunity to sidestep that. Social media has made a humongous difference, a, a huge difference to the way uh, people view the world and to the way we view other cultures. There are more people now asking questions about Aboriginal and Islander Australia than there ever has been. People are saying, why are so many Aboriginal and Islander people incarcerated? Why are so many children taken away? In Victoria, we have the, more children being taken away now than during the assimilation policies. That's absolutely freaking horrific. And it's horrific because um, it's spun that far out of control. Uh, how do we counter that? How do we fix that? How do we get these kids reconnected to their culture? Most of them are taken, uh, when they're taken, a place with non-Aboriginal families. Now, while that says a great thing about race relations, it says a horrific thing about the loss of culture, the loss of the oldest living culture in the world. You know, we need to say, what's going on here? How can we fix this? How can we support the agencies which are trying to stop that flow? Every one of those kids are going to grow up with an identity crisis. We were, think, we were speaking earlier in, in, in our program this morning, um, Richard, about the, the, the recommendations coming out of the um, Royal Commission into Family Violence in Victoria, which was they were, they were um, released last month. And I wonder, I mean, we're speaking about the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. 1991, we received those findings. I wonder at the legacy of these really important, really landmark um, um, commissions and hearings. And uh, I mean, what... What legacy are we are we getting from from the Aboriginal Deaths in Custody Royal Commission? Is it is there something that we can hold someone we can hold to account for what happened with these recommendations? Do you think? It's, I think it has to be the government of the day, but the government of the day needs to bear in mind that they are only the government of the day. Um, they're only there at the will of the people, but it's we who put them in place. The reality is simply this. Children are being taken away. People are dying in jail. People are being incarcerated at a great rate of knots. And these are Australians. And the, the fact is that we know about this as a nation. It's commonplace knowledge. But very little action is done about it. You've got a handful of bureaucrats with a small budget loading money onto an organisation, uh, a community NGO which is under-resourced and quite often incapable because of that lack of resource of servicing the community. Who's to blame at the end of the day? Every one of us. All of us. Well, we know there's, in Western Australia in particular, there's Days of Action this week, and um, you mentioned um, NAIDOC coming our way very soon, um, and there are ways to engage, as you as you highlighted earlier in this conversation, Richard. And I'd, um, I mean, we'll stay in touch with you, but I think um, I really thank you for joining us today to talk about the uh, anniversary, quarter of a century since, um, since the Royal Commission handed its findings down for Aboriginal deaths in custody. Thanks for being with us. No, it's just in closing... This is not about guilt. 
this is not about welfare. This is saying that we, the current people of Australia, have been left a legacy. And we've been left a legacy of a 228-year-old cultural clash. And these are some of the things that it's been off deaths in custody, the removal of children, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the invitation is there. Get involved. Thanks very much. And I think a lot of us don't realise the extent of the relocation that's taking place in the Carteret Islands, which is near Bougainville in Papua New Guinea. Uh, people are on the move already due to climate change and there's a speaking tour taking place uh, later this week uh, featuring some people from those islands to update us on what's going on. And Cam Walker and Friends of the Earth are part of uh, a a group of organisations hosting the speaking tour here in Australia and there's uh, events in both Melbourne and Geelong and he joins us as he does monthly to talk about this and, and other issues uh, at the moment with regards to environmental policy uh, and it's really good to have you again Cam and I think, like I said, I think a lot of people don't realise that there is an in-principle agreement to relocate about 6,000 people from the Carterets um, to Bougainville over the next um, period of time and that's already ongoing. Yes, it is, and it's probably a story that's being played out around the world, you know, where small communities are just finding they, they can't survive where they are, and there's documented cases of that in the Arctic with Inuit and other Indigenous communities and certainly through the tropical parts of the world. So the Carterets are, you know, they're a, a series of small atoll islands a long way from here, I guess, but also just in our backyard. They're generally to, just slightly to the east of Bougainville and as you say they've actually agreed to move as a community so it's quite a remarkable thing you know those people have been there for at least several thousand years and uh, they're, they're facing the, the actual loss of their homeland at present. And what have they been experiencing over, over the past few years Cam? Is it sort of rising sea levels and, and inundation on the island? Yes, exactly. So rising sea levels, which means that when they get a king tide, uh, they're getting flooding of the island. Now, these are very low-lying atoll islands. They tend uh, to have a, a lens of, of water uh, in the middle of the island, which is traditionally where their drinking water comes in. And also they survive, obviously, off the ocean, but they have really fantastic food gardens, which also grow in the little uh, inland areas um, so as uh, inundation happens, as salt water comes in, it kills off the gardens. It makes it, you know, impossible to grow food and it also contaminates their drinking water. The other thing they're also finding is that uh, currents are starting to shift and uh, fish stock that they've traditionally relied on have, have moved as a result of the currents moving. And there's some belief in some science that suggests this is also connected to general warming of the ocean there. And the people have tried to respond. They've built seawalls with rubble and rocks all the way around their island. They've adapted their lifestyles. So, for instance, they don't have a tradition of, of gathering rainwater to drink, whereas now they, you know, they've started to, with, with help of aid groups, they've, they've set up water-gathering points off roofs. And they've even started to grow their food crops in 44-gallon drums, so they're above the water rather than in the ground. But they were finding that they were getting malnutrition, particularly amongst the kids, because a lot of the, the key food crops, they just couldn't grow at the scale they needed anymore. So it's actually back in 2005 they decided as a community to relocate, and they've been working on that ever since. And so who's coming out to speak, Cam? And I suppose what's the motivation to come to, to uh, different cities in Australia to speak about this issue? 
So it's twofold. Um, there's two people coming. Ursula Rakova. Now, we hosted her here in 2007 and did a specking tour much like this one. And Ursula is an amazing woman. She is the the chairperson of, a, of an NGO there that was set up by the Carteret's community called Tulele Piesa. And it means in the local language, sailing the waves on our own. So they're, they're aware that, you know, it's up to them to move, to relocate. And she's coming out to tell that story. So they've been going since 2005 they struck an agreement in 2007 with the Catholic Church who owned land on Bougainville they've been negotiating over access um, ever since and she'll be telling the story it's a devastating story because it's the loss of a homeland but also they looked around the world and they saw what happens to refugees. Normally what happens is if you're in a war or if you're facing crippling poverty, you know, or you're losing your homelands from climate change, people tend to hang on until they're so desperate, you know, they can't survive there anymore and then, and then they leave. And they leave in kind of dribs and drabs. They leave as individuals and family groups. And they realise that what happened is you tend to you lose the young uh, able-bodied men first because they sense opportunity elsewhere and often at the other end of the story the elders are left behind and they said they didn't want that to happen they wanted to move as a group so they maintained their culture and their sense of community um, as a people so it's actually a quite a remarkable story as well of you know these unbelievably poor people that have contributed nothing to global warming because their lifestyles are just incredibly simple are on the front line of climate change and they've said okay we accept we have to move but we don't want to be victims we want to relocate as a community and keep our culture you know and our belief system intact and i think that's quite a remarkable uh, testimony to the strength of them as a community so she'll be telling the story of what she'll do and she'll, she'll also be talking about how australia needs to act on climate uh, climate change. She was at the uh, United Nations negotiations in Paris last November, representing her community. So she's going to talk about the, the island nations who are there and, and are really strong voices in the UN negotiations, the Maldives and, and, and Kiribati and Tuvalu and, and so on. And then there's also a man called Pius um, Tehu who represents some other atolls in the region and they are also moving. And this is a more recent development. The Carterets decided to move more than 10 years ago, but the atoll, what's called the Coalition of the Atolls, which is four other groups in that time have also realised they're losing their islands and they can't hold on. So this is a problem that's growing and, and the take-home message will be if you can help us to do this so that we can relocate and continue our lives, but make sure your government does the right thing and actually acts decisively on climate change. And these are people and communities who have essentially allowed for this uh, relocation to happen themselves through, through negotiation and, and councils and so on. But I mean, we saw last year a man from Kiribati unsuccessfully seek refugee status in New Zealand, claiming uh, he was, you know, the world's first climate refugee, essentially. Um, that was denied because, uh, you know, the, the understood definition of refugees that you're fleeing persecution. Do you think that as more people are forced to relocate, that that definition and understanding of uh, climate refugees will change and will be legally binding? 
it has to change because the reality is there's going to be tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of climate refugees uh, in coming decades. That's just a fact of the matter if we, we don't deal with climate change. And the figures out of places like Bangladesh are just astonishing. You know, there will be millions of people on the move unless we deal with climate change. I don't. We worked on this issue. We tried to get Australia to recognise climate refugees as a, cap, uh, a separate category of, of refugees. I don't think we open up the convention that covers refugees at present. I don't think we tamper with that. I think we need a new globally uh, binding compact or treaty which will recognise climate refugees and treat them separately to people who are fleeing, uh, you know, conflict and so on. Uh, but it's just going to be necessary. And New Zealand was often seen as being very forward-thinking on this. They had a thing called the Pacific Access Category, which was often seen as a de facto uh, climate refugee kind of program that allowed stage migration from Pacific Islands, particularly those that had cultural connections to New Zealand. Uh, but it was very sad to see that determination that said no when you drill into it we don't see this as a climate refugee program so we are going to have to have them australia is going to have to have them we're going to have to accept some responsibility to our neighbors in the pacific but certainly globally we're going to need a new treaty that specifically recognizes climate and other forms of environmental refugees and i think also i mean this is in the context of um uh the sort of approval i suppose of the of the adani um coal mine lease in queensland but also massive coral bleach in the Great Barrier Reef and I wonder if this together with these stories coming from um, from our neighbouring uh, countries will start to raise awareness again of the impacts of climate change in Australia, Cam? Oh, you have to hope so, don't you? Um, you get a bit weary thinking about this because, you know, I, I remember in 2007 Ursula coming out here and talking about the imminent displacement of her community and the need to act and, you know, fast forward to 2016, here we are and nothing has happened still. It is a bit disheartening that the climate science keeps getting sharper and sharper and tells us ever more clearly that the window of opportunity we have to avoid dangerous climate change is rapidly closing and yet we continue with business as usual and, you know, up in Queensland, what will be the largest coal mine in Australia and one of the largest coal mines on the planet has just got an, another set of approvals from the state government. So it's mo it's lurched one step closer to being, uh, you know, at production. It's still got a long way to go. Um, and it will produce, I, th I think they're saying, over the life of the, of the project, um, 2.3 billion tonnes of coal over 60 years, you know. And anyone who's sane, anyone who's reading the climate science knows that the time for new coal is just long over. Um, and yet we have state governments and industries that continue to push this type of industry. And there's no doubt that there is a link between climate change and the, the bleaching event we've just seen on the Great Barrier Reef. So, you know, it's, it's hard not to feel a bit bleak about this. It is so obvious, and yet we, we just continue with this willful denial and business as usual. But, you know, I guess that's, that's the reality we have, and uh, we need to keep moving and, and doing what we can to encourage uh, governments, both at the state and federal level, to do the right thing, and, and that actually means take decisive action to radically reduce our emissions now, not at some point in the future, and certainly not to be approving new mega coal projects um, in Queensland. Thanks so much, Cam, for being with us again, and we'll catch you again in a month. That would be great. And now the reading room. And uh, Mel Cranenberg, acting editor of The Big Issue, joins us monthly, and uh, we talk all things reading and look at different books and types of writing, and um, she's with us again. 
Nice to see you, Mel. It's always great to be here. And um, one of your favourite people and one of, I think you couldn't get another person other than you maybe in <laughs> Victoria or, or Australia or probably the world who reads as much as Joe Case, Program Manager uh, with the Melbourne Writers' Festival. She's an author and you two have worked together working on the fiction issue of The Big Issue and uh, it's really great to have you with us, Joe. And we're going to be talking short stories today and um, maybe you'll pass over to you Mel to talk about the collections that we're going to be discussing. Well actually these are two short story collections recently published that were chosen by Joe Case. Um, Single Carefree Mellow by Catherine Heine, a US author and Six Bedrooms by Tegan Bennett Daylight who is a Australian author and Joe, I loved these collections, but I really want to talk I'm to you about. Well, yeah, I really did. You did not lead me astray. You never have yet. Um, <laughs> but I'm really keen to know why you chose these couple of books. I have a fairly good idea, but it'd be great if you could share it with listeners. Sure. Well, I just loved both of these books were two of my favourite books of last year. I would say that they would each be in my top two of, um, would be in my top four. Um, So Single Carefree Mellow was the first one that I discovered um, and I read it and it just made me want to write my own short stories. There's just something about, um, so a lot of the stories in this collection are kind of themed around... um, women who are involved in affairs um, and they're really kind of they're not stereotypical at all they're really and they're not judgmental um, and they kind of use the affairs I think just to explore these characters um, the author's husband is um, is a spy or some kind of like she works in, he works in intelligence and she says that that's why she was interested in writing affairs because it's kind of writing secrets um, and I choose to believe her um, <laughs> and <laughs> interesting um, but they're just so smart and funny I just love the tone of them and um, I think the way that they're written just made me think oh you, you can and um, some one of these stories has been published in the New Yorker like um, so they're quite they're considered kind of um, literary as well as accessible and reading them just made me think oh you can write like this and still be taken seriously. I want to write like this. Look, so, and they're, they're incredibly funny, as you say, but mm. I also found myself, and I don't think it's giving away too much to say that there is a, you know, the loss of a pet in one of these stories, <laughs> but I was, I really was sobbing at the end of that, that tale. It's, you know, really, it, you know, they're yeah. very kind of, you know, you sort of feel like on certain surface level there's a lot of jokiness and wit about them, mm. but she really does get under the surface with uh, with her writing. Absolutely. It's just a beautiful tonal mix in both of these collections. I really love books that are not just one thing and especially books that are sad and funny and serious and silly and, you know, and, and both of these have that kind of mix, although the, the silly <laughs> and, and the funny is, you know, it's much more laugh out loud funny in, in single carefree mellow. Um, so Six Bedrooms, um, the Tegan Bennett Daylight, that um, was released in July last year and that one I just picked up and I'd read Tegan's short stories before, particularly one that I really loved in um, Charlotte Wood's collection, Brothers and Sisters, about a woman, uh, about two sisters who moved to London when they were about 19 or 20 and one of her sisters is kind of really 
pretty and successful and, you know, kind of finds life easy. And the other one's a bit awkward and um, just hates being in London and feels lonely and um, obviously has her own set of friends back home that she writes to, um, but is obviously the kind of person who can find it hard to fit in. And it's just, like, such a sad story but also has these funny moments and it just perfectly captures that transitional time um, when you're moving from childhood to adolescence and I think by setting it in London so she's also kind of between different places really kind of accentuates that mm. and this collection Six Bedrooms has um, it's it's all kind of all, the, all of the stories are around that transitional stage and a lot of them are um, adolescents so and there's just something so she just captures that time so well um, it's wonderfully there, described there that make you go really yeah. <laughs> Especially that, you know, a lot of her characters do that sort of looking back on a time in a sense when, you know, they really didn't think or feel like they were, you know, didn't feel much about themselves. They felt, you know, badly about themselves. But then looking back, realised actually they were quite pretty when they thought they were ugly or they were quite, you know, that that they really weren't who they thought they were or were much kinder to themselves as older versions, which it was, it rang so true actually reading a lot of those stories that I found my sort of cringing with awkwardness mm-hmm. at certain key yeah. moments. Oh, absolutely. Can I can I just read a paragraph like that, that just really captures that awkwardness? Absolutely. Okay. Um, just excuse me while I fumble with my bookmark here. Um, okay. So this is a, a teenage character, one who, who uh, recurs throughout the collection in the first story called Like a Virgin, and she is at a party and she's just drunk a lot and she's there mainly to kind of stalk a crush. It was the tequila, undoubtedly. I did something which, years later, still has the power to make me shudder. It was unforgivable, as though I'd learnt nothing in the last four years of high school. I said, would you go out with me? <laughs> <laughs> just that, you know, the way she frames that. I'm just, you know, I don't like, think the laughter was part of the paragraph, was it, Joe? No. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> painful laughter. Like. <laughs> it's funny because I, I actually, that scene made me cringe. That's, in fact, one of the scenes that yeah. made me cringe quite a lot because immediately I thought about that sort of stage of adolescence where you sort of have to had to act cool all the time and uh-huh. um, she didn't, she made the, the horrible scene of not just um, saying, would you, you know, it wasn't, would you go out to the movies with me? It was, would you go out with me? Which was literally something that you, you would never say. And it is cringeworthy, isn't it? Because I remember being in year nine and being new to a school and someone saying to me, can I give you a ring? Thinking, and I'm thinking, oh. Oh, they're going to give me a ring. That escalated. Like, oh, no. She's like, I'm no, not ready. Met, they meant like a phone call. And I just had this dilemma of, oh, my God, an engagement. Like, what are they going to give me? And I just... <laughs> Those sorts of phrases. So, so you said no. But it, I said no. No, you can't give me a ring. <laughs> but it is that awkwardness, you, you don't know isn't what it? It's about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that putting yourself out there and just like being slammed down, which you know, 
I, I do want to bring to bring up something you've just casually mentioned there, which is the recurring characters, because mm. I think, and this is something you did mention when you were suggesting these books, is that's interesting between the two collections is that, you know, as well as being quite disparate stories that that um, that thematically may have some things in common, otherwise have completely separate characters and scenarios, uh, yeah. there are recurring stories with recurring characters, and I found this a really lovely sort of punctuation in both books that you sort of feel like you have that sense of continuity you have you don't have to quite leave the world that you've been introduced to which is always a little bit heartbreaking about short stories yeah yeah absolutely and I I think it's really fascinating that um both of those collections and also another one that came out last year in Australia um Abigail Ullman's um Hot Little Hands also it was one that had a recurring character throughout and then in short stories but then completely separate short stories in between so I wonder if that's a bit of a thing at the moment but I I do love it because you kind of get the best of both worlds between short story and novel you know you get to follow a character absolutely yeah and in Tegan Bennett Daylight's um Books, you're sort of following Tasha and, and Judy, a pair of friends that have known each other since they were little kids and, and of course have a life, well not of course, but have a lifelong friendship. And what's really wonderful mm. about that is you sort of get the sense of how that friendship changes from adolescence, mm. um, childhood adolescence through to adulthood. And, um, you know, it's sort of, there are times when Tasha, for example, who's the, the protagonist in these stories, really grows to sort of, you know, it really feels like she dislikes Judy or resents her in some ways while at the same time sort of loving her and you know her being her very best friend it's such a such an extraordinary insight into adolescent relationships where it's sort of every person for themselves in a sense because you're just surviving probably one of the worst periods of your life at school high school I think for many period many people some people loved it I'm sure but I think for most people going through adolescence is, is, you know, you're learning about yourself. So that sort of sense of survival at all costs and, you know, maybe a friend can be a help or a liability. But it was a really, it's a really interesting way of looking at, at seeing those vignettes of a friendship. Oh, absolutely. And that was one of the things that, you know, I loved about about Tegan's uh, collection is that it's so complex. It's so spiky. Like there are... I think in both of these collections, actually, the narrator is someone who you're really rooting for because you're so intimately inside their head and um, so and you empathise with them, but they're not likeable at all. And there are moments when you just like you cringe at their behaviour. Like the, the bit I read out before is where you cringe in sympathy, but there are bits like um, in the story Firebugs, which I think is the second story with. Um, with Judy in it, um, I could be wrong there, is um, she's got a boyfriend uh, and and Tasha is really jealous of, of the boyfriend, but the jealousy comes out in just like being really critical of him. And there's one moment um, in particular where, you know, Judy says, um, and, and in the hierarchy of this friendship, very much that Tasha's the slightly cooler one and, and Judy is, is not. Um, and so Judy says, Alfred told me I was stunning. And Tasha says, so how embarrassing, I said coldly. 
I mean, that's so, 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 so bitchy. And there's a lot of those moments where she's sort of, you know, regarding her friend in this quite cruel way uh, when you think about mm. it. But in another sense, you think that's a reflection of how she feels about herself as an adolescent as well. Yeah. So she sort of, she she almost needs that friendship where she can feel slightly superior um, as a way of sort of bolstering up her own fragile ego. And it's, it's, re- it's very brutally yeah. honest, though, I think, in her, um, you know, Tegan Men at Daylight is being very brutal in her assessment of, of adolescence. She's not cringing away from yeah. these things. And I think it's a really, I think it's amazing in that respect. Is it aimed at young people, this book? Six, no, six bedrooms? No, I think, I think it's for adult readers. Um, would you say, Mel? I say definitely adult readers because there's a lot yeah. of looking back involved. Um, you, you're really getting mm. that sense that, you know, you would, you know, and and within these um, these ruminations on adolescence, it's from the perspective of an adult looking back more often than not. So I think very much yeah. it's for adults. It's, it's interesting because we had David Burton on the show a few weeks ago talking about his memoir, oh. which is intended for for young adults, how to be happy, all about those things that happen when you're an adolescent, kind of finding out who you are at, at school and so on. And I'd kind of mm. realised that I'd, I'd avoided reading books that were about that period of my life because I probably associate it with YA fiction, which I don't, you know tend to read a lot of but it's interesting that these books Mm. are kind of tracing back to those very formative periods of all our lives which are intended for for adults but not for the people who are at that time in their lives. I sort of felt like Dave Burton's book though in a way was really and and that's a memoir for those of you who didn't hear last Mm. week um, I felt like that really was intended for a younger reading Mm. audience having said that I read it and Mm. was incredibly moved by it too so I think that's one of those ones that could cross over. Yeah, but I feel like this would be actually, in some ways, I don't think I could handle reading something like like this quite as easily as a youngster because you don't have that, you're in it really. And whereas I guess what she's sort of examining is being past it, you know, sort of looking back and having these insights into adolescence from an adult perspective, Um, not quite in the same instructive way that Burton's doing it, but more Mm. in a way where, you know, the the reader is sort of recognising parts of themselves and also recognising that they recognise. So so there's a lot of levels to it. That's my feeling anyway. Yeah, and it's, it's really analytical in a way I think you wouldn't get if you were right in the experience. Like one of, one of the interesting things in Natasha's stories, I think, is her relationship to sex, for instance, you know, and that... Um, in Like a Virgin, the first story. Um, this is in Catherine Heine's collection. No, no, this is in... Um, oh, this is in The Six like Bedrooms. Okay, yeah. I like a virgin, yeah. the first... Yeah, the... Yeah. <laughs> the first story. There's that scene where the, the girls, you know, are, like, writhing around, kind of, like, dancing to Like a Virgin, and she's um, narrating as an adult, but, you know, but she... she you know, they're, they're all singing and dancing to this song and acting sexy, but none of them know what it would be like to be touched for the very first time like a virgin when you're not actually a virgin. And, I mean, that layer of kind of complex um, kind of reflection you would never get if you were still in that stage. And also the ending to that story is an absolute kicker as well, it has to be said, without giving away too much. I think oh, we should say we're, we're yeah, speaking about three collections really Six Bedrooms by Tegan Bennett Daylight um, and uh, Single Carefree Mallow by Catherine Heine and Joe Case is with us she's with the Melbourne Writers Festival and Mel Cronenberg with a big issue and um, you both read really widely and I'm interested Joe's like when I mean you sort of picked up some themes that the, you know this is a short story collection there's recurring characters in it and because you read both of you read so much you do sort of pick up themes like this that might cross across you know writing styles across across the globe how do you come 
Comet, reading a new book, are you always sort of fresh to it, Joe? Do you kind of go with an open mind or, you know, how do you come at it these days when you when you sort of read for a job, I suppose? Yeah, it's interesting, but um, I think it's when you read a lot, you're rarely completely fresh to it, um, especially if you're working in the publishing industry and a lot of your books do come through to you through work. They usually come with a certain pitch. So, but it's so exciting to discover something you don't have any preconceptions about. Um, I was just talking to a friend last night about um, the... Sorry, I'll just very quickly mention another book. Um, I've got my pen ready. I'm writing it down. <laughs> trilogy, actually. Joe's book list. <laughs> so, but when um, I, I read the Frank Morehouse um, trilogy, the Edith books, um, a long time after the first two had been published, and we were both saying we discovered those books like in a second-hand bookshop or something and had some kind of preconceptions about Frank Morehouse that he's one of those old white guy writers who you, you think will be quite dry and literary and, and they're these delicious books. Um, and I was completely... I just both of us, um, this friend I was talking to works in publishing too, had that feeling of just being really delighted and taken by surprise by discovering something that's not at all what you thought it was. Um, and I have to say the Catherine Heine collection that we've been talking about is one that um, I had a meeting with with a HarperCollins publicist and I'd been talking about how I like Laurie Moore <laughs> and this is not a book, this Catherine Heine book was one that is just um, was having a very small release in Australia um, so it wouldn't have been pitched to me but just on the basis of that she said oh you might like this book and she sent me a copy and I just loved it so it's much It's so I'd funny. I've heard of it otherwise It's so funny you said that Joe, because I was just going to go, because uh, I love Laurie, Laurie Moore as well and we've certainly talked about that yeah. and I read this Catherine Heine collection and went oh my god it's like uh, she's she's got her own style as well but it's that mm. that amazing use of humor that is so rare I think or too all too rare yeah. to have that sort of wit and you know a sort of satirical edge but still have the undercurrent of genuine um genuine emotion genuine connection um complexity mm. but also kind of you know really sparkling quite sharp wit and wordplay uh Catherine Heine's mm. another author, just like Laurie Moore, who really likes a little bit of clever wordplay as well as, um, you know, this sort of recurrent humour to her her books, as well as the darkness. It's uh, it's very well done. And, and she had a long hiatus yeah. between books, I understand, Catherine Heine. Is that right? I think you're thinking of Laurie Moore, maybe. Oh. The, she had quite a long uh, break between two short story collections. Mm. And how do you read short story oh. collections? Do you sort of go from the beginning right through to the end and read them in order or do you skip through or what you know um, I mean I mean I my I tend to kind of read from front cover to back cover but is do they have a sequence definitely these stories I read from front to back cover too just because that's what I'm used to doing and I suppose in collections like this where I mean I think these collections, because they have the through stories of the recurring narrator, it's definitely much better to read them in that direction because for most of the stories, it doesn't matter if you dip in and out, but you do want to read the ones with the recurring narrators in order because, you know, that's it, it is in sequential order. Um, but I kind of think of short story collections as maybe being like an album in a way and that they have or an old-fashioned album perhaps and that they've been really curated mm. for how the stories fit together so that you have a certain experience and it's okay to dip in and out but you're not going to get the exact experience but 
I agree. You know, I, I think intended. the really interesting thing as well with the Catherine Heine collection is she uses the second person, so she'll, some mm. of her narration says you. Um, and I found mm. that kind of a little bit jarring to, to be... Um, no, I mean, I loved the use of you. I think she did it very effectively. But then suddenly to mm. go into the third person, um, I almost felt like I'd lost some intimacy uh, with with the next oh. story so in a funny sort of a way it was I really noticed it I mean I'm, I was soon sort of won back but there was that little yeah. moment where I had been really compelled by the you um, it, I didn't find it annoying at all I found it really actually it sort of it hooked me in and then to get to yeah. the next story to suddenly be in the third person I felt slightly distanced so it was it was really interesting actually looking at how that um, you know how those things affected me it was uh, it was an interesting interesting process yeah I actually I thought writing in the second person is so hard to do and often it doesn't work but I felt like she was very good at it in those couple of stories that she did um, and one of those two new stories was the one that was published in the New Yorker actually um, and back to what Dylan was saying before about the gap between uh, in, this is Catherine Heining's first official book the short story collection but she did um the, the story in the in the New Yorker was published like ages ago, like maybe fifteen years ago, a really long time ago. Um, and so, and then she had a family, and you know, kind of didn't write for a really long time. And that's partly why this has kind of come out of the blue, rather than it being something that's built up out of publishing short stories, and she's kind of known. Um, so maybe that was. Um, that was what you were thinking. I think you're right. <laughs> I knew there was something in my head that I was scrambling around for. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I knew what you were talking about. <laughs> There's yet another parallel between uh, Catherine Heine and Laurie Moore. I, I just think it's amazing to find to find a writer like this that you sort of really have, you know, that sense of, you know, of like not just kind of um, someone that you really enjoy reading but someone that you really love and I think that as yeah. one of the things that you know if we're going to talk about people that read quite a lot I find that I'm a little bit more jaded about literature now it's it's very rare that I I really just find I completely adore um, a writer and I think when you find one like that you really love them and I find that more often mm. these days with short story writers than I do with novelists and I think it's something about you know the marathon style of a, of a a novel is is harder to sort of get that sense of craftsmanship with um, than a really worked over short story. Perhaps that's it, but I, I really do find yeah. it more frequently with short story writers. Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, when I said these are two of my top four books of the year, I mean, that's 50% of my favourite books of the year um, are short story collections. So maybe I'm coming from a similar perspective I don't know but it's also interesting like the Catherine Heine one which I just adored I can also really see some flaws in it like there are a couple of stories I was like I don't know if they needed to go in there and the endings most of them I just wanted to lock off the final paragraph but she has the best beginnings ever like they're brilliant and the endings I'm like yeah but that doesn't mean I don't but I still just love it and I think that's interesting when you can, like, it's not just looking at a book and it's perfect. It's like you can see the flaws, but what's great is so great. What do you think? Yeah, I think, look, I think that's a very fair comment. I think sometimes she's gone for a little bit of a twee <clears throat> ending on things, but I do think that the craft line by line is really extraordinary. Oh, it's yeah. hard to keep that tension. Yeah. Uh, novelists that can do it can really do it. And both you and I have spoke about um, Rager Chow's book um, and, mm. you know, how that really... Uh, 
you know, has one of those incredibly stylistic elements to it where you feel like, you know, all of the lines have been really worked on as well as the structure. And it's hard to do that in a novel. I think harder in some ways than it is um, to kind of sustain it for the length of a short story. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I guess, actually, Marais' book is one that I think is the exception in a book that I really loved, but I also think is just perfectly structured and and, and done. I'm sure there are some flaws, but I thought it was pretty, yeah, pretty well perfect. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah, I, I, it's it's funny. I wonder if some writers are really great at beginnings and others are really great at <laughs> that's a That's a conversation for a whole other program, Absolutely. I think. I must say that now that I know that um, Catherine Heine's um, uh, fiction has, short fiction has been in the New Yorker, I'm kind of, as we speak, looking up. You know, do you know that fiction <laughs> podcast where they, where um, writers... the many fiction well, podcasts. From, from <laughs> the one, who is it? Um, Deborah um, from, from the New York fiction, New Yorker's fiction um, editor, Hyman. Mm-hmm. She, Tridman, yeah, she um, gets an author, they pick a short story from oh, back yes. in the distant past and then they read it and then they discuss it. And oh, I if love anyone's that. discussed Catherine Heine's, I'm going to go back and look. Well, they have now. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps you can Find request it. it. Send it to me. I'm going to send you the link, <laughs> yeah. Um, thanks so much, Joe, for, for being with us and all the best um, preparing for the Melbourne Writers' Festival. And, um, oh, thanks so much. It was fun. And uh, no doubt we'll hear you on Triple R again very soon. And um, uh, Joe is program manager over there at the Writers' Festival and an author in her own right. And uh, Mel Cranenberg, acting editor at The Big Issue. And you'll be back in a month, Mel. I in amongst your surely many commitments. will. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for coming. And those three books that we've been discussing, Single, Carefree, Mallow, Catherine Heine, Six Bedrooms by Tegan Bennett, Daylight, and Abigail Ullman's uh, Hot Little Hands. And um, we'll try and put links up on our social media channels so that you can chase those up if you need to it you've been listening to a podcast from australia's best known community radio station three triple r 102.7 in melbourne for more podcasts information about upcoming events and our live stream please visit our website at rrr.org.au